You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, where it's all about helping you grow your Denver real estate portfolio. Here's your host, Chris Lopez. Welcome back to another episode. So today we'll be talking about the May stats for the Denver real estate market. We were recording this in June, but now we have all the stats for May. So we'll talk about the main stats for May, some lending updates, uh, and also just some rental updates as well. My name is Chris Lopez. I'm a real estate agent here at Your Castle Real Estate. I focus on helping people buy investment property. And my co-host is Mr. Joe Massey at Castle & Cook. Joe. How's it going? Fantastic. Great to see you today, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast always. I really enjoy doing these uh, market updates. And this one's going to be a little different than some of the ones we've done in the past with the stats. So I'm kind of excited. There's some different news, different things coming out of the market here. And uh, looking forward to going through this with you. Yeah. So as everyone knows out there, you know, right uh, in the early part of May, uh, the world started lifting again. You go out there, see properties, and the things picked up. So we'll dive in the stats here. If you guys want all the details, all negative details, click on the link in the show notes. We got all the images and links and numbers on the show notes. But Joe and I are going to touch on the very high-level points to kind of give you the pulse on the market. So, I mean, let's talk about the new listings. So in May of 2020, there were 7,300 new listings Uh put on the market. And a year ago, there were 8,796. So we're seeing 17% listings of May 20 compared to May 19. 17% less. Sorry, what did I say? You said listing. 17% less, fewer listings. Thank you. Yeah. Um, And then comparing the new listings to April, though, going prior month, and April is really everything just locked down, there were 4,600 and change new listings on the market. So we had a huge increase of 56% uh, going from April to May. Active listings here at the end of May of 2020, 7,200 approximately. A year ago, we actually had more on about 8,900 listings on the market. So we're seeing about a 20% a reduction year over year in listings. So Joe, when you hear those stats that, hey, there are less listings and less inventory compared to May 19 to May 20, or May 20 compared to May 19, what does that say to you? Yeah, so this tells me that we are still in a massive housing shortage, all right? A year ago, we had 8,900 homes listed for sale in the Denver metro area. Now we have 7,000, well, basically 7,200 homes listed. So that is 20% reduction in listings available, 20% reduction in inventory out there. You know, we've got a corona crisis. We've got a pandemic that's going on right now, or we're, we're slowly creeping out of. But people are worried about, oh, man, we're going to see that, you know, there's going to be foreclosures and prices are going to go down. Well, None of these indicators point towards that. What these indicators point to is continued growth, continued shortage of inventory, continued appreciation of properties. There's simply too many people moving here, too many people living here, too many people that need a place to live and not enough homes for them to go live in. Um, so these reduced inventory levels are remaining at the forefront of what's driving our market. Um, and so if you own property out there, I think it's a great time to continue to own property. And then moving on to the next point here, uh, pending sales or properties that are under contract. So this is a big increase from April. So April, we had just under 3,200 properties under contract. At the end of May, we had 6,800. So that's a 115% increase. Now, May 19, we're at just over 6,000. So the thing there is just this huge upswing from April going into May, which shows to me is that 
um, yeah, while the world did slow down quite a bit in April, we still had a lot of properties under contract in April. But fast forwarding to May, all that pent up demand, man, it came out of the gates. I mean, it was right around I don't know, like May 10th or so, yep. right around then. It was just like, holy smokes, what happened? Someone just turned the fire hose. Multiple offers, people showing properties. You can even get a property in time to go look at a property or yeah. get a showing in time to go look at one. Yeah, what I'm seeing is this really, this chart and this data indicates to me what we said anecdotally 45 days ago. And what we said back then was, hey, we're going to close the same number of transactions in 2020 as we would have without the pandemic. The only difference is we're going to take about 60 days off from May uh, from March 15th to May 15th when transactions are going to be super far down, super low. And that's what we're seeing. There was only 3,200 sales in April. But we're going to take that 60-day period and we're going to move the spring selling season back by 60 days. And that's what we're experiencing. May 15th all the way now to June 15th, we are picking up and you've just shifted the market back 60 days. There's going to be just as many sales, maybe even more sales in the second half of the year as we would have seen without the pandemic. So I think this is an indication that we are still in a very strong market, very good time to own real estate, very good time to buy real estate before it's more expensive tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. And the uh, the average and medium price, this tells a very interesting story and it's something that we've discussed on a few podcasts in the past. The average closed price was 496000 last month. Now, a year ago, it was 502000 So the average price actually declined 1.3%. Now, the medium price went up from 430 last year to $439,000 in May. So we're seeing an increase of just over 2%. Now, remember, averages where you take all the numbers, add them up, and divide them by the total. Median is where you pick the number right in the middle. And Joe, we've talked about this on previous podcasts, but the reason we're seeing that average price drop is because the higher-end properties, the you know more luxury-style properties, they are not selling like they used to. Yeah, it's more difficult to get financing for a larger property, right? So we're not selling as many million-dollar properties. We're not selling as many $2 million properties right now. We're selling uh, more properties at 200, 300, 400, 500,000. We're not selling things at a million, 1.2, 1.3. So that average price appears to be going down, but that doesn't mean your property is depreciating. It just means we're selling more properties at the lower end of the market than we are at the higher end of the market. And I mean, I haven't uh, seen any emails recently about the jumbo loans and that's, I know the jumbo loan market really seized up there a couple months ago. Is it still... Uh, it's still Not pretty functioning? tight. Uh, no, it's it's functioning. We actually have a new jumbo loan program that we're rolling out uh, on Monday, which is going to be very beneficial. And for us, we've never even stopped doing jumbo loans. We've had to make some changes in how they work, make some changes in requirements, but we've been doing them all along. Um, so clients looking to buy those million dollar, 1.2, 1.5, we've got options out there. Um, you know, maybe just a little bit tighter criteria than there has been in the past. Okay. And the last thing we'll talk about on the data points here is just the uh, close price to the list price. So this is, hey, if the uh, property was listed at $100,000 and then it closed at $99,000, that would be a 99% close to list price. So it kind of shows you, hey, we were listed at this, where do properties close at? So at the end of May, we were at 99.4%. So six-tenths of a point, that's a whopping discount there, huh? 
That's not very much, man. On a $300,000 property, that's what, like $1,800? Um, that's not a lot. So I, I almost think that's a rounding error. Comp- you know, the difference between a year ago versus now, that is not a meaningful change in the market. A year ago is at 99.7%. Um, and again, that's what, three-tenths of a point? That's nothing. Yeah, I mean, $900 difference. Yeah. That, that's, that's nothing. And this just goes on with the other data as far as like, uh, you know, low inventory uh, and all the other news out there, all the other stats out there that, yes, we have are through some really weird, uncertain times, but due to the lack of inventory and the still strong demand we have, properties are still selling right around list price. And for properties that are well marketed and well priced, as the story's been the last couple of years, they're going over asking with multiple offers. I mean, a lot of the properties we're buying, we're still going in over list price. Yeah, I got a property under contract this past weekend. There were 12 other offers, um, and we got uh, narrowed down to one of the last three and then spent a lot of time working with the listing agent, answering their questions. Buyers did revise their price up even further after their initial offer, and we were able to win that contract, but the property was listed at 450 We finally ended up going under contract at 472 mm. So about a, almost a 5% premium, right? So compared to what we see up here, prices are selling at 99.38. That one is at like 104 and a half, right? So think about that. You're going to have to bid up some properties if it's a really competitive property. So don't be afraid to do that. And the last data point I want to talk about in the market um, is the showing trends. And this is data that your castle collects on their internal listings with their uh, brokers who have, who have properties listed. And so... Uh, you know, throughout the year, starting in January and February, showing started off really strong. We actually had more showings per property than we did in 2019. And then they started dropping off in March because right around mid-March, we got locked down. And then April, they just went off a cliff to about four showings per property, which still seems very high to me for the month of April. But then going back up to May, it goes back up about 10 properties and it makes a perfect V on the graph. So starts there, drops off and goes right back up. So it's a, a, a V-shaped showing trend. And that just goes in line with all the other data we talked about where there's strong demand to go out there. My prediction on this, Chris, when we get these stats for June, I think we're going to see that showings per average listing is going to be up somewhere between 12, 13, 14, continuing that upward trend, putting us ahead of even where we were at in 2019 and 2018. That's my prediction. So you guys tune in uh, next month to see if I'm right or not. What are we betting? Uh, a cup of coffee. All right. Well, just from the just from the, the cafeteria downstairs, not like oh, yeah, Starbucks. The free coffee? Yeah, the free coffee okay. downstairs. I like your style. So if I'm wrong, I'll buy as many cups of free <laughs> coffee as you want. Um, now let's talk about financing because this has been a, a roller coaster the last couple months in the financing world. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what's it like right now with financing? You know, the what? lending world. Yeah, it's actually been really good. Um, a lot of lenders are overburdened with refinances. They've not been able to keep up. Um, so you have seen some lenders increasing interest rates, um, not aligning with the market because they're worried about volume and they cannot uh, keep up with the demand. So a real easy way to slow down demand if you're an individual lender would be to increase your interest rates. And that slows down the number of applications coming in. That's not something that we've done. Um, and not everyone has done that. We have seen that happen with some of the, the larger national lenders, which you 
you guys can go to the websites and, and easily see those indications. Um, so we will see a little bit of that, that some lenders are overwhelmed with refinance volume. There has been some changes in underwriting criteria. Uh, if you're self-employed, we do require a little bit more documentation now. We are looking at your bank statements a little more carefully, and we are looking for that year-to-date profit and loss to make sure your business has not been impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. Now, for self-employed, is that just sole proprietors or is that I know it includes sole proprietors, but what about someone like me? I have a, an LLC mm-hmm. and I pay myself a W-2. Yep. Am I considered self-employed or you is are, that? Okay. Because you own the company that's paying you. Okay. Right? So, yes, that would be considered self-employed. Um, now, we're very familiar with it. We make the process easy, but it is one or two extra steps for the client, one or two extra steps of paperwork that they didn't have to do in the past, but we're still handling those just fine. Um, you know, you touched on the jumbo market. Uh, those are still out there. We're actually rolling out some new jumbo loan programs. And uh, if you're looking to buy a million dollar, half a million, or, you know, one and a half million dollar, whatever, we've got a lot of options out there for that. But the big thing I would say is lower credit scores. Previously, we would go down to a 580 credit score. We've actually revised that now to a 620 credit score. So, and that's been common with many lenders. In fact, many lenders have moved their their minimums up to 680 or 700. Oh, wow. Uh, One of my favorite large national banks that I love to pick on, uh, they actually moved their minimum credit score to 700 and minimum required down payment to 20%. So if you're working with a lender and you're pre-approved and you're out looking at properties, make sure you call them and make sure your pre-approval is still valid because nothing might have changed in your situation. Your job is still the same, credit is still the same, you have your same down payment, but your lender may have changed their criteria, especially if you got pre-approved 60, 90 days ago. Double check with your loan officer, hey, is my pre-approval still valid? Did anything change? Um, If it did, that might mean you have to change lenders or you might need to just get some updated information uh, from that lender. But overall, for us, things are going great. We're still moving forward at our normal speed, normal pace. Purchases are closing in our regular time frame. Uh, I think more than anything, you just need to be diligent in interviewing your lender, vetting your lender, make sure they know what your time frame is. Make sure you know that they can accommodate your time frame, that they can truly perform and get your transaction closed uh, on the date and time that you need. So with the, you know, between like people losing their jobs and now tighter lending requirements, how much of the buyer pool has been knocked out? Sure. Uh, not a lot. Maybe 5%, maybe 10%. You think is that like is Denver nationwide pretty similar on the I think so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because let's say you have 100 people uh, and they're sitting on top of the table, right? And we're going to say, hey, you know what? Uh, anybody below, in between a 580 credit score and a 620 credit score um, that's actively looking to buy, those people are no longer going to qualify. So let's, let's just pick a number and let's say that's 5% of people. All right. And now let's say, hey, you know what? Self-employed people that their business has gone on a decline due to, uh, due to COVID-19. That's going to be another segment of people. Let's say that's 5% of people. All right. So that's 10% of people that are going to come out of that buyer pool. But this has made an opportunity for some people to get back into the buyer pool. A couple of things. A lot of people are out there thinking, hey, there's going to be a decline in prices. So it's a great time to purchase an investment property. So we have a lot of investors that are getting off the fence and getting back into the buyer pool. So maybe we had 10 people come out of this buyer pool of 10 of 100 people, but we've had 10 other people from over here that are now interested in buying because it's the market conditions seem seem good for them. All right. So we've got people coming in. So I think you maybe have five to 10% of people that used to be qualified that now can no longer be qualified. But I feel like that five to 10% of people has been replaced by well-qualified buyers that are getting back in because they feel it's a good time. I even think about the other 
the other side of the coin on that. Yeah. So I don't think there's going to be a big change in the supply and demand. I think we still have not enough supply, enough inventory, too much demand, too many buyers. And even if we did have a reduction of 50% of the buyers, we would still be in an extraordinarily strong seller's market. So I actually want to loop back around a question here for you on the self-employed stuff. So for people that like received the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, which was mm-hmm. geared towards small business, help them do payroll, meet, does that matter in the underwriting? It does. That? It does not. It's not an automatic killer. It's not like we look at it and say, hey, you got an SBA loan, you're out. Um, we just want to see what happened. You know, did your business slow down? You own a restaurant. Okay, your business slowed down. Um, is your restaurant back open? Let's see what's been going on. Are you back open? Are things going well? I'll give you a real good example. We have a client who old, owns a Golden Corral, right? His business has been massively impacted. Um, unfortunately, his business is still closed. So he currently does not have the ability to repay the loan. So we can't give him a new loan right now because his business has been massively impacted. I have another client who has a trucking company and he got the payroll protection plan loan and uh, his business has actually increased because he's doing more deliveries for Amazon, more subcontracting for UPS, FedEx, et cetera. So his business has increased. He got that payroll protection plan as a stopgap and we looked at it, looked at the most recent couple of months, looked at the profit and loss, not a problem. His business okay. is, is growing. We're going to continue to move forward and do his new loan. Yeah, so it's not a, it's not just a killer on your transaction. Uh, one more question here on this is, what's the latest on forbearances? Yeah, forbearance. Um, national average is about 8.5% of people have gone into forbearance. For those not familiar, forbearance means putting your payments on pause for 90 to 180 days. And it's a pretty complicated process to get out of it. Most people are going to have to pay those three months or six months uh, in that next month when it's due. Um, there are some options to add that forbearance as a silent second that you would pay back whenever you refinance or sell the property. But the biggest impact of forbearance is it's going to prevent you from getting new loans in the future. You're going to need to make your payments for a minimum of three months, but more likely 12 months after your forbearance plan before you can qualify for a new loan. So, so let me ask, because I've seen a bunch of headlines and some emails saying, hey, they now drop that 12 month requirement to three months. So, mm-hmm. is that a guaranteed three months? Because you said not. three to 12. Yeah. So, you've got to get your, you've got to get from the modification or, pardon me, from the forbearance into a modification and then make three months of on time payments. Well, modification doesn't just happen at the snap of a finger, right? So, you've got to go through that process from the forbearance, get your loan modified to where, hey, we're going to catch up on our payments or we're going to have those payments added to the back end of the loan, or uh, we're going to get those amortized into the principal balance. There's various different options, and depending on how long that takes, once that's all completed, then you need to make a minimum of those three payments. So if that takes nine months to get that modification completed, then you can make three monthly payments. Now you're 12 months outside of your forbearance. What's the speculation? Because I know when forbearance happened, it was just you know horrendous wait times on the phone for people I heard. Mm-hmm. And now I'm assuming as modifications start coming up, there'll be uh, it'll be a bottleneck there. That's exactly right. Are is there any pre- predictions as to like how big of a bottleneck it'll be? Uh, you know, the for going into forbearance required no verification of hardship. Um, it was very simple. A lot of servicers just set up where you would call in and go through automated prompts. And that process was pretty easy. The modification process is going to be more complex because you're going to have specific choices about how you want to do that, how you want to do that modification. Um, so I do would expect certainly there to be a bit of a bottleneck there. So um, if you did a forbearance on April 1st, 
that July 1st payment is coming up pretty soon, I would get on the phone sooner rather than later to start dealing with that. Okay. Great. And then one more thing uh, I want to talk about here is just a couple days ago, your castle published uh, for the month of March just GRM maps and GRM is gross rent multiplier. And what they did is they took a snapshot of uh, pretty much like the Denver area, Denver metro area, and they broke it down by neighborhoods and showed the GRMs. And they did one for a one-bedroom, a two-bedroom, a three-bedroom, and a four-bedroom. And GRM is a metric that I don't really use myself. I think you're more of a fan of than I am, Joe. I use it all the time. Yeah, I just I like cap rates and cash and cash return. But GRM is you take the the sales price and divide it by the monthly rent to get the GRM. So what buy it for a hundred thousand dollars, divide by a thousand, your GRM of one hundred. One hundred. Yep. I'm glad you can do math. That's right. So the the important points you want to understand here, and if you can zoom in a on this a little bit, yeah. so I'll use some real numbers here. So we'll get the three bedroom GRM. And if you guys sorry, if yep. you guys want to see these or download them, go to the show notes. Uh, they're on there on the blog post and they should be the high resolution ones. And always feel free to uh, email me or email Joe and we can get you these as well. Yeah. So um, exactly what Chris said, we're going to look at the three bedroom GRM map. And what we want to do is you'll notice that the areas in red are going to tend to, this is an average, they're going to tend to have worse GRM. 216 or higher. So high G the higher the GRM, the worse. The higher the GRM, the worse. The areas in blue, in dark blue, are going to have better GRMs. So better GRM means uh, more rent compared to the purchase price. So let's scroll down a little bit here, Chris. Um, let's look at Wash Park. This is my favorite area to pick on. Gorgeous area. Love Wash Park. Terrible for rents. So if you scroll there, you see Wash Park East, GRM is an average of 289 the average price for an investment property there is $771,000. The average rent range is $2,300 to $3,000. So that's a GRM of 289, uh, 289 GRM. All right. So if I buy a property for $771,000, I can rent it for on the high end $3,027. Now there's some you know, variables in there. Sometimes I can rent a little bit more. Sometimes I can rent a little bit less. This is a neighborhood average. Well, now let's look directly to the west. Look at Valverde. This is a GRM neighborhood of 154. So here, prices average price is 302,000. Top end of the rent range, 2,256 dollars. So compare that for a second to Wash Park. Wash Park, I can buy it for 771,000 and rent it for 3,000 dollars. Valverde, I can buy for $302,000 and rent for $2,200. Now, it's not as much in dollar amount for rent, but I'm paying less than half for the property. All right, so that's what this map is indicating. On average, the areas are in blue are going to be areas that are good for rents, where you're going to get strong cash flow as compared to the purchase price. Now, there's always going to be outliers. I love it when people bring me a property like, I found a 110 GRM and it's right here in the 252 GRM block. I'm like, yes, I know. It doesn't mean, it's not the end all be all. These are like our price change maps. They are averages for your neighborhoods, but investors out there, house hackers out there thinking about where you want to buy, this might be a good place to start rather than just throwing a dart at uh, the entire map of Denver and saying, this is where I'm going to pick. 
download this map, look at the areas that are in dark blue, and let's start with those areas. Um, be just a good jumping off point for where you want to start looking at properties. And, and I would not so much get focused on the georams, but just, hey, look at the, the color key. There's five different colors on here, and you'll notice patterns and say, hey, great, these areas look very promising. And the areas that are promising, they line up with the areas that we buy investment properties in. Like, hey, parts of Southwest Denver, Valverde, those areas, they have good GRMs. Well, guess what? We buy investment properties there. That's right. Um, and other parts of town. So it's a great thing to get you like that, the the big picture overview. And I definitely recommend, especially if you're newer to Denver, newer to investing, this is a great thing to spend some time and study and get a feel for areas where that price to rent ratio makes a lot of sense. Yep, absolutely. All right, guys. Uh, so we'll wrap up this podcast. Remember, all the data, maps, show notes, or are the show notes. Click the link to go there. If you have trouble with the maps, email me, email me, uh, email Joe. We'll get you the copies. Uh, but thank you for listening. Listen if you have specific questions for the next month. We want to hit on stats, uh, rental trends, which we're covering at different podcasts, the property managers, and of course, lending updates. So, Joe, thanks for joining me today. Chris, always appreciate it, brother. Everybody out there, have a great week. Stay safe, and we will see you next month. Mm-hmm.